This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. It's great news for anyone intending to travel outside of Canada, and also a recognition that people are planning trips and taking them, regardless of government guidance. Passengers who are fully vaccinated against COVID-19 no longer need to get expensive PCR tests to enter Canada. Rapid tests taken within 24 hours of arrival will be the new requirement starting February 28th. International travelers will still be selected for random COVID tests at Canadian airports, but they won't have to quarantine at home while awaiting the results. The Trudeau Liberals are also dropping the Global Travel Advisory recommending against all non-essential travel. Now they are only urging us to take precautions. Will that make it easier to travel? Will it bring much-needed business to the beleaguered travel industry? Libby asked these questions of our panel of experts. Beth Potter, President and CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of Canada, and Martin Firestone, President of Travel Secure, Inc. It is what I think incredibly positive, and let's call it a step in the right direction. I have to mute my enthusiasm a tad because yesterday when I was so excited about it, many calls and emails from people not quite feeling the way I did, feeling it has to totally be taken away before it's going to work. But I say better late than never, and it's in the right direction. So I suspect travel sales and purchases will increase dramatically right off the bat. Beth Potter, what about you? Oh, I'd echo those comments exactly. I mean, this is definitely a forward movement uh, back to what we, you know, would commonly call normal travel. Um, But there is still that testing requirement uh, that is in place. And so, you know, there's still a a ways for us to go, but uh, definitely, you know, we're going in the right direction now. Uh, Marty, um, it's good news, but you can't exactly take one of those antigen tests at home and show the result. You, uh, what does it mean? Is it is it okay to get it at a pharmacy? Uh, what do you have to get? Yeah, so a couple of real interesting points that have come out in discussions already this morning. The 24-hour uh, limit that you have to get it and be back in Canada, it's going to be interesting for the snowbirds and your Zoomer uh, population that don't drive home in 24 hours. So it's not like they're going to get it in Florida in a pharmacy and then it'll still be viable when they get to the border. So people have to plan a little bit to stop at some point and get it at another location. So that's just an interesting point for maybe people who are listening. But I think at the end of the day, it's going to be a lot better than running around for a $300 PCR test and then waiting for results, which could take, you know, 48 hours instead of a 15 minute result at a pharmacy level, wherever they may be. Is it the same? It's the same on the other end. You need a negative antigen test to get into the United States, right? Correct. And and that's what we have at local pharmacies here. And it's one, two, three, and you're kind of used to it. So theoretically, if the same sort of test is required there, but what didn't come out yesterday, most interesting is if you test positive on this antigen test, you still have to quarantine 
10 days before you can get back into the country? I suspect the answer is yes. So that still is in place also in case that happens. Beth Potter, what is uh, among your members the hardest hit part of the travel industry and how do you see a recovery? Well, it's been um, a real challenge for really all kinds of businesses across our suite of sectors that make up the travel and tourism industry. And so the biggest, I think, impact has been those, those, those live events. Uh, they have been, they've been cut down, um, over the last two years because they're the ones that have the biggest number of people in attendance. So, um, really looking forward to the return of those, of those live events this year. In fact, starting in just a couple of weeks. What are some of the ones coming up soon? Um, well, we're we're hearing that uh, you know business events are starting to to come back, so uh, conferences and trade shows, um, and um, and consumer shows. So in the Toronto area, as an example, um, in April, uh, the Cottage Life Spring Show will be back on uh, in its full capacity, and that's I know it's a a big. Um, uh, you know, lots, lots of folks uh, that would listen to to this radio station um, are also cottagers, and they would love to be in attendance at that show. Martin Firestone, last word to you. I think one other thing that was overlooked, also great news yesterday, was that 12 years and younger, who typically had to quarantine 14 days when they returned from a trip, can now... Uh, do not have to isolate and go, go right back to school or daycare, which is going to get a lot of families who are on the fence at March break to decide now, let's go, because we don't have the issue that we were faced with before yesterday's announcement. So all positive. I really think we're going in the right direction. Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure Inc., and Beth Potter, president and CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of Canada. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We've been talking a lot about the Federal Conservative Party lately as members have gone through significant changes and more than a little turmoil. They dumped Aaron O'Toole as their leader, and the leadership race is on, although there's been no announcement on a timeline, rules, or the amount of money needed to enter. The only declared candidate is Pierre Poliev, a firebrand on the right, who will appeal to the base. Many names have been bandied about from the moderate wing of the party, but is there anyone who can bring the two sides together? Lisa Raitt is a former conservative deputy leader and still a force within the party. Now she is co-chair of Conservatives for Clean Growth. She also has been very open sharing her personal situation, which is important to us here at Zoomer Media. She is caregiver to her husband, Bruce, who lives with early-onset Alzheimer's disease. Lisa Wright spoke about all of these issues when she joined Fight Back on Wednesday. It's early days. I mean, Pierre came out very early to set the tone. He had 14 members of Parliament sign up to say that they support him, and that's a really show of force, right? So it's the way in which Pierre approached it, it's almost like a, a bully bid when you're in real estate, meaning hopefully people are going to take a second thought uh, about whether or not to run because he showed that he had such great support from within caucus. However, there are lots of people out there who think that the next time the Conservatives run, uh, they're going to be forming government. So it is an opportune time. So that's why you hear so many names being being tossed about. I think once the party tells you what the rules are, how long the campaign's going to be, and how much it's going to cost to, to enter the campaign, 
you'll see uh, it all crystallize and people will start announcing that they're actually going to be running and this is what their campaign team looks like. Are you involved in those discussions at all? I'm not. I'm not. I've taken a different path. So I was a candidate for leader in 1617. I was the co-chair of the organizing committee that ran the race in uh, 2019. And this time I've taken a different path. And instead of supporting a candidate, I'm part of a group who wants to be a resource for candidates who want to put forth a climate plan that ensures clean growth in our country. And that's kind of what my passion is right now. I'll work with any candidate who wants to do this. There's opposition to that in the party. And uh, my understanding is that that's one of the reasons that Aaron O'Toole became unpopular was because he suddenly decided that that having a policy carbon pricing was okay. So, you know, it's interesting. Part of the reason why I wanted to join this was because I think we focus way too much on the price of carbon and whether or not there should be a price, a retail price on carbon. And for the trees that we look at, we miss the forest. And the forest is we are moving to a net zero world. We have natural gas and nuclear in this country that we want to promote and make sure it's part of the transition to net zero. And without conservative voices in government or in the rooms in which decisions are being made, we're not going to be able to advocate for a slow and steady approach to ensuring that our economy continues to grow. So that's that's where I come from. I'm not going to argue with people about carbon tax. That is one of the ways in which to deal with pricing of carbon. But it's not the only way, and it's not the only issue. And I want them to, to think climate policy and growth is very different than just talking about raising money from taxpayers and why we shouldn't do it in the way that the Trudeau government has chosen to do it. Let's talk about the issues that are going to be really important in the next 10 years. And I see that from my work um, in my current job at CIBC, how important these discussions are and the fact that they're really happening. It seems to me that there's a fundamental divide in the Conservative Party between the old progressive Conservatives and the old Reform Party. Um, Does that get healed? So, uh, yes, of course. And I would say that although I'm pretty sure people think I'm a red Tory, the reality is it's the the fiscal side of the party that attracted me to it. So the, the really hardcore uh, fiscal conservatism is what made me want to run. That that was the key for me. And, and I've always found uh, to have common common goals with folks who are more to the right than I am, especially when it comes to the economy. So I say that to point out that on issues, we can work together. It's a big party. It's a big tent. And you don't feel divided when you're sitting in that caucus room together. And not to be flip about it, um, they did all come together in, in order to remove their leader. That was a vote that was very, very clear that it was uh, all stripes within the party that decided that they wanted to have a new leader. Lisa Raitt, former conservative deputy leader and co-chair of Conservatives for Clean Growth. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, how do Canadians feel about the Prime Minister invoking the Emergencies Act? A discussion on that question coming up next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. 
Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Ahead of a vote in Parliament on the Trudeau Liberals' decision to invoke the Emergencies Act, the opposition Conservatives and Bloc Québécois MPs call it a huge overreach they will not support. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh says his members will support it reluctantly, mostly because he says the prime minister let the anti-mandate occupation go on for too long in downtown Ottawa without doing anything to end it. Not all the premiers are on side. The first ministers of Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Alberta, and Nova Scotia all say the Federal Emergencies Act is not necessary in their provinces. Not surprisingly, they are all conservatives. But here in Ontario, PC Premier Doug Ford is behind Justin Trudeau on the move. As for how Canadians feel, a Maru public opinion poll this past week shows two-thirds of Canadians support the Prime Minister's move on the Emergencies Act, with as many as 82% of respondents saying the blockades and occupations were allowed to go on for too long. Christine Van Gein is litigation director at the Canadian Constitution Foundation. David Tarrant is a conservative strategist and vice president at National Strategic Communications. And John Wright is executive vice president of Maru Public Opinion. They joined Libby for a discussion on Thursday. Canadians are incredibly frustrated that this has gone on as long as it has. Um, You can see a real anger that the institutions themselves have become apparently impotent. And the backdrop for all of this is not just the Windsor Bridge or Coots in Alberta. It's, it's primarily uh, downtown Ottawa with the backdrop of the Parliament buildings where allegedly the most powerful minister, uh, you know, in the country uh, can't come out in front and sort of say, get off my lawn. It's just not happening. And so he's impotent from doing that because he can't direct the police. I guess the question would be whether or not this in its in its actual making is to put the RCMP on on the same civilian civilian police footing as everybody else, so they can all go and do what they have to do as a job. But I think that the public is supporting this very symbolically. They don't understand the details of it. Uh, oftentimes uh, in politics, people don't. Mr. and Mrs. French Porch have heard about this, but the sentiment underlying it, by at least between seventy and eighty percent of the public, is. Stop this. It's gone on long enough. I don't care what it's about anymore, or you should be able to remove them. And that's the frustration. So the prime minister brought in something which may be, everybody may be right. It may be a complete overreach when, in fact, what's necessary is the police to move in and do something. But to the Canadian public, their growing anger, their growing frustration on the impotence of politicians and the institutions over the last number of weeks have now accepted this as yet another tool. They may not understand it, but you know, a tool to end this because they see the consequences of it and they see the impotence of the institutions to deal with it. David Tarrant, I mean, one of the things uh, people looking at this say, hey, uh, the blockades at the Ambassador Bridge and in Coots were resolved without the Emergencies Act. Yeah, I mean, well, in the case of uh, the Ambassador Bridge, I mean, the province declared a state of emergency. Yeah. And, and those emergency powers did help um, uh, uh, police forces w- w- with that situation. Uh, you know, I-, I think the 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 ultimate situation, the ultimate sin, for want of a better word, 
of the federal government and or the city of Ottawa or the, of the Ottawa police is they were clearly uh, unprepared. They clearly did not had no uh, underestimated the the uh, the intensity uh, of of, the, of this of this occupation and protest movement. They were caught off guard, and by the time they they wrapped their head around what 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 had happened, the protesters were dug in. This is a politician who completely lost the plot in terms of a massive uh, a security breakdown on his front doorstep, and and that's a real concern here. Like like this is this is this is all reactive. It's all dictated by public opinion. It's not actually driven with, with any kind of long term plan about how do we restore order and protect the public. Christine Van Gein, it's kind of hard to believe that this is part of some nefarious plot to cancel our civil liberties. Um, why do you think it's dangerous? I think that this is dangerous because this is extraordinary legislation. Um, it gives the federal government special powers to deal with emergencies. It puts the federal government into provincial jurisdiction. Uh, and that's why the threshold for invoking this legislation is so high. And we don't want to be in a situation where our governments govern by emergency order. And we've seen this creepingly increasing throughout the past two years. And this is kind of the pinnacle of that. It's, it's not justified to use these extraordinary powers of declaring a national emergency when we can see it can be dealt with during using existing legislation. Christine Van Gein, litigation director at the Canadian Constitution Foundation, David Tarrant, conservative strategist and vice president at National Strategic Communications, and John Wright, executive vice president of Maru Public Opinion. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It was one of Doug Ford's key election promises in 2018. Before he was elected Ontario's premier, he committed to lower hydro rates by 12 percent. Instead, according to an FAO report released this past week, hydro rates went up. Specifically, residents have been paying more than 4 percent on their bills from between 2018 and 2021. The governing PCs maintain they have fulfilled their pledge because they say the rates rose less than they would have under the Liberals. Libby discussed the situation during Thursday's fight back, starting with Peter Weltman, Ontario's financial accountability officer. When we were doing the analysis, we were looking at all the different subsidy programs. And part of the work was to try to figure out if we could figure out where the 12% was going to come from. And we had discussions with the ministry. They told us that the government intended to show they're meeting the 12% by comparing the cost of electricity now, after the government made some changes, to what it would have been before. And in fact, what we found is in 2025, uh, residential electricity bills will be 12% lower than they would have been had this government not made the changes they did. As the financial accountability officer, do you uh, I, do you have an opinion or do you accept the explanation? We're not actually lowering bills. We're, we're just uh, it's it's just lower than it would have been if you had elected the other guys. Well, I think we don't. Uh, part of the mandate isn't to judge whether or not governments are keeping their promises. That's certainly something that's best left to voters. What we do is we look at the cost of all of these programs, and we also the other important piece on this report 
is to show where some of the benefits are going. So there are, there are nine different uh, subsidy programs, and the two really big ones, the Ontario Energy Rebate and the Remo- Renewables Cost Shift, those both subsidize folks for consuming electricity. So the more electricity you consume, the more money the government will subsidize on your electricity bill. There are other programs that help you if you are living in a northern or rural area where your distribution costs might be higher. If you are lower income, there are programs to help you address the cost of electricity to keep it affordable within your income bracket. And now let's go to Peter Tabbins, who is an NDP MPP and the energy critic in the party, as well as Paul Accioni, a senior management consultant. Uh, let's start with Peter. Uh, do you accept that explanation? Well, I, I think that the financial accountability officer has done a good job looking at what's going on. But I have to tell you, in the 2018 election, I, I read the Tory platform, and there was no talk about we'll have a lower bill than you would have gotten if the Liberals get elected. No, they said they were going to cut hydro rates by 12% uh, by returning the Hydro One dividend payment to families. Uh, they were going to eliminate the enormous salaries of the Ontario Power Generation Hydro One. Uh, they were going to uh, stop bearing the price tag for conservation in your hydro bills and pay out of general government revenue, um, and that they would reduce hydro rates by 12%. Well, they didn't. Uh, this whole thing now, they've realized that they aren't delivering on any of those promises, and they've looked around what's a convenient way to explain what's going on, and so they've latched on to, well, it would have been higher if we hadn't been elected. Well, that's not what they said in 2018. They said, we'll cut your bill by 12%. Not that it'll be better than the Liberals would have delivered if you keep them in power. So uh, it was a scam then, and it's been revealed now thoroughly to be a complete and total scam. Paul Accioni, what do you make of an explanation like that? What you see in the report, the current report with the uh, the Financial Accountability Office, is the original projections of the liberal, liberal government of what the cost will be in the future, but they're grossly understated. And, and, and the, the new government discovered to their horror that, that basically they got, they got a set of books that were under, understating the actual costs. And, and so they didn't immediately discount the rates 12% because they were looking for a way to, to, to reduce costs so they could, they could, they could satisfy their promise. And I guess, I guess it took them a few, a few years to figure out what they had to do. One, one, of course, was to cancel all the renewable contracts that they hadn't signed because it was driving costs further and further up. But for the average residential consumer, they had, they had to struggle to find a, a, a way to get the cost for the, for the residential consumer down, and it took them a few years to figure it out. Paul Accioni, senior management consultant with nearly 50 years of engineering and management experience in the nuclear and fossil power generation industry. Peter Tabbins, NDP energy critic, and Peter Weltman, Ontario's financial accountability officer. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. 
Fight Back with Libby's Nimer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Paul in Barrie called about what he would like to see done on the Ottawa occupation. We didn't listen to history here. On January 6th, the insurrection in the capital in the U.S., it wasn't the police that got rid of the demonstrators. It was the military. They called in the National Guard. As soon as the soldiers showed up with real rifles, the demonstrators left. And that's what has to happen here. We should learn from history. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Rhonda in Kitchener, who wanted to see some joint action by the Premier and the Prime Minister in ending the Ottawa occupation. This was left gone, gone way too long, and the politicians wonder why we're losing faith and we're starting to get resentment because they wait. Not just that Ottawa promises, a lot of promises that we can go on about Libby. For the seniors, for, for raises, for pensions, for dental care, health care, the whole shebang. They don't seem to stand by their promises or their word. Well, Mr. Trudeau or Mr. Ford, whoever, get together, please. You have no choice now. And I mean no choice. And show us. Give us some faith that you have some backbone and some courage. And don't let these people do it anymore. They, we, we have to show vaccination at the border. Then you stick to your guns. What you said you were going to do, they have to show it or get out. Lose their contracts, do something. Declare martial law, which I know is drastic, but aren't what they're doing is drastic, inconsiderate, and insane. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. And call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fightback. The best of Fightback is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.